Welcome to Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I'm John Fort from CNBC. This week, I spent some time talking to Ginny Rometty, the chairman and CEO of IBM. Now, I've been wanting to do a CNBC and Fort Knox interview with Ginny for years now, and this year, it finally all came together. As a matter of fact, she and I have been making up for lost time. She's been kind enough to sit down with me three times in January after a keynote at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, in February at IBM's Think Conference in San Francisco, and this week at CNBC's first Future of Work event of the year in New York. We've got a rhythm going. After our onstage interview tackling artificial intelligence, workforce training, and more, she joined me for a dive into how IBM is addressing those challenges specifically and how the themes of technology shifts, equity, and discomfort fit her own journey. Now, this is a quick talk by Fort Knox standards, but it's packed. Ginny doesn't waste words. Still, she left me wanting more, and I'll wager you'll feel the same. I can guarantee I will try to get her to spend some time with me on Fort Knox again. Here's Ginny Rometty. Ginny Rometty, CEO, chairman of IBM. Thanks for being with me here at CNBC at work uh, for CNBC and Fort Knox. So uh, you guys, we, we just got off stage. Yes. You guys are deep into artificial intelligence, not just building it for products and services to deal with clients, but also use internally. Yes. And use when it comes to hiring, retraining talent. Yes. What, what brought that about? Oh, yes. Well, it, the original genesis of this was a belief that AI will change 100% of jobs. But if you're going to really get the benefit of it, you have to change how the work is done. Yeah. And we chose to make HR, my HR leader chose to make HR really the role model example of that. And she has done a fantastic job putting AI in end to end. And in fact, I make her, you know, she tracks. And we have now, just from the AI alone, my HR function has saved $300 million from just doing that piece of it. So it isn't just about, in part, it helps the employees because it completely makes HR employee-centric. You don't do things to people, you do it for them. It's consumer-centric because of how we apply the AI. But the other part of it is there's productivity on the other side, which is both important right now. So, so often when we talk about artificial intelligence and we talk about work, the idea comes in, oh, the robots are coming to take our jobs. Yes. Um, to some extent, I think that's true. The robots are coming to take some jobs. But how do you use it, even at the individual level? How do you think about the technology in a way that actually helps you? Yeah. Well, our, our experience has been, and, and I'll, I'll just use, we were together talking about HR as an example. On one hand, you're right. We were able to replace a lot of routine work. And in the case of HR, our HR staffing went down by 30%. However, the people then doing the job of HR, they do far more non-routine work. Their salaries all went up or their skills went up with it. And so you're going to have this trade-off. I mean, technology will drive productivity, but then it will also drive you and I to do our job different. So it sits at that intersection. Right. So everything from how we recruit today, um, I, I was sharing with you that, believe it or not, we're the number one destination for Gen Z on Glassdoor. I get 8,000 resumes a day. Now, I don't make them go hunt for jobs. The AI talks to them, and they get to say, um, we ask very nicely and get permission. Share this with me, share that with me, share this LinkedIn review with me, share this resume. And instead of you looking for jobs, I'll serve up jobs to you that actually match you. And we, I should have said this, our match rate of applying is 30%. A normal, anybody else, it's about nine. Huh. So it, it just shows this effectiveness. Or using the AI for things like a manager who says, um, 
I'm doing salary, right? right? We do something to be sure salaries are fair, no unconscious bias that are in there, and then as well, proactive retention. That is the ability to use many pieces of data that say, this person is likely to quit in the next six months, so do something now so that it never enters their mind. We're 95% accurate and saved 300 million in replacement costs from that. Wow. So these are both good for the employee and it's really good for business. There, there are an unprecedented number of companies, startups, going public this year. And that has got to create just an impact in the labor market, uh, in the financial markets, just in, in demand for technology. What's your take on the significance of this boom right now that we're seeing at this stage of the economy and that, how it's affecting yeah. IBM? It, well, it, it's not just driven by that. I yeah. think you've got married here this idea that this whole new wave of technology is gonna change everyone's job. Yeah. So it means reskilling of your current population. And so they don't go to one of those start startups? Well, or? And, and also so they've got the skills that apply for the future. Yeah. So I think this point of the word transparency, you and I chatted about how being clear with every employee that is their, is their skill in the market hot, or hot, 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 or not so needed demand? And for your strategy, is it needed or won't be needed for the future? We update that every quarter, that matrix, and we share it with employees so they know where they are and they say, yep, I gotta move myself here, and we use AI to help them move to a new area. But I think what's happening in the market, whether or not there were IPOs, this would be happening anyways, this remake of skills. And so it means reskilling your current population, it means I, you know, I've shared before on the show, strong belief we've got to make this era of technology more inclusive. Right. Six-year high schools, community colleges and high schools together. We've been working with 500 other companies. With those schools, there's a pipeline of 125,000 kids coming through. And you said 15%? And 15% of our hiring was less than four-year high school, less than four-year college graduates. Because uh -huh. if you're going to make this era inclusive, the technology is moving so fast, you've got to make it so more people can have a job in this world. And I, I just shared with the CHROs, one of the number one issues we see is we all as employers overspec the jobs that we go to hire for. We write down so many credentials they should have, and it's not true. So if you're your cyber analyst, which there's going to be two million open jobs of cyber, let me tell you how many people can actually fill that that don't have mm. to have all those credentials. And so I think if I, if I just talk that one moment about making this era for this country inclusive. It's that in 15%, and particularly the middle of the country, right, uh, where we've done that hiring. Let's personalize that for people, because uh, at a commencement address, I think it was about four years ago at Northwestern, your alma mater, you told a story that, that fits this exactly, about yeah. uh, growing up, you were a teenager, your dad left, your mom went to school, went to work, yes. didn't complain, and you said you learned a lesson yeah about not letting other people define you. How does that fit with that very population that you're talking about and the opportunity if, I guess, if employers don't uh, have the wrong level of demands for the skills needed? Yes, I mean, I'm a perfect example of that. My mother had not gone to college and the day she found us with no money, four kids, and she had to do something. And the idea that skills is the great equalizer and it's an era where I think we should look and say, hey, skills might be even more important as a diploma. It isn't that we don't all wish for our kids to have four-year degrees or PhDs, and there'll be a lot of them like that, but at a minimum, right? Look at their skills, give them credit for their skills versus just looking for a diploma. And that's what it is I'm trying to communicate because that idea, what I watched my mom do when she went back to school, got an associate's degree, right? 
and got a job to take care of us, she was not going to let someone define who she was. She wasn't going to be an unemployed mom that was on welfare. That wasn't how it was going to end for any of us. And she never said anything. We just watched what she did. And that education made all the difference, right? And so that's to me, I don't care what income level you're at. I've now witnessed it with these 125,000 kids coming through. We went to the worst parts of the country to go into these schools. And these are often first generation. And I tell you, the graduation rates are 400x a community college. Attendance goes up into the 90s. And it's a very simple formula. Give them a curriculum. Uh, it's not about big computer labs or anything. Basics, soft skills are what you actually have to teach the kids. Uh, give them an internship in the summer and a chance if you have a job, you'll hire them. And so this is an infinitely solvable thing, public-private partnership, to not let anyone define who you are. I know you're not a big fan of talking about yourself. No. Um, but it's my job to try to. <laughs> I wonder, you've been doing this job for more than seven years now. And you've been at IBM a lot longer than that, leading a lot of different organizations. You've told some stories about that. But I wonder, over the course of your career, what was the, the biggest stretch the, the most challenging leap from one job to the next? Because you, you've talked about how you can't expect to make progress if you're too comfortable. What yes, was the most yes. uncomfortable transition? Yeah, I, well, there have been many, but I think it was the first one that was the most uncomfortable in that, and that's really the lesson learned I, I share with people. And it was a time I'd been asked to take a, a job in a completely different field than where I was. Um, I had always been in our product businesses, and this was to go and completely start a new business in consulting and services. IBM was just going into it then, right? I mean, today we're a $55 billion services company. We yeah. weren't then. And I was one of the first to move over and start into that. And at the time, I, I thought, oh, boy, I don't know if I should do this kind of thing. And, and it was you know, my husband who had said to me, do you think a man would answer the question that way? And he was because right about said, that. Your boss said, I, I, he invited me and I said, and, I needed to think about yeah, it, yeah. right? And, and what it taught me though was that lesson. I went back the next day, I took the job and he said to me, the boss said to me, don't do that again. And I said, I, I understood that. And I, and, but what it, it taught me that I even to live by it to this day is that if you're gonna grow, growth and comfort, so in other words, taking risks, they will never coexist. Mm. You won't grow if you don't take risk. And that's what you have to do. And I think it's true for, by the way, as I've come to see, it's not only true for individuals, it's true for companies. I mean, there are many things we've had to do in our reinvention and will have to do in our reinvention. They're not easy. And it's true for countries if they are going to propel and move forward to the future. How so. do you prepare leaders for that? Well, People who report to you for, yes. for that, not only the discomfort that they're going to feel, but the discomfort that their people yes. are going to feel. We, we spend a lot of time talking about um, preparing people for uncertainty, leading in uncertainty, uncomfortable truths, to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. So we talk about this topic an awful lot because you are asking people to take risks. But it, I guarantee you, if I looked at you and I said, John, when have you learned the most in your life? If you shut your eyes, you will tell me it's when you were at risk. I don't even have to shut my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> you would tell me that, right? It's such a yeah. natural thing for everybody. And so that to me is what you have to make it overt and you have to talk about it and you have to put people in those assignments, be clear that's what it's an assignment for. And that to me builds in that kind of good risk taking in a culture. You talked about IBM uh, being a number one target for Gen Z. Gen Z, I feel like gets a, a bad rap. Uh, these days, and millennials too. All those young folks, you know, they're saying about them all the things that they used to say about Gen X um, back when I was younger. Have you noticed anything unique 
uh, about Gen Z, about that workforce that's aspiring, uh, you say, to be in IBM? Or is it pretty much, you know, the generational stuff doesn't matter? People are just... Well, I, I will tell you on generational issues is an example. One, I think, misconception people have is that um, people's ability to learn and transform is directly related to their age. Mm. That is found, we have found that to be absolutely not true. The same percentage of people who can transform, irrespective of age. And absolutely. usually people think the older people are the ones it, who can't. Those are stereotypes, yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's absolutely not true in, in what we have found. Um, I, and I, I, by the way, have found it very true on consumerism as an example, pushing us to make everything consumerism and easy and agile. I have found that true across the entire workforce by segment. So um, do I think many, this idea of consumerism is especially important to a business to business company because business to business also often can have things be complex. Um, we've had to internalize, and this is why today there's 20,000 design engineers at IBM, 20,000. I believe we may have the largest number in any That's corporate. That's a lot of people, yeah. You know, in one of the best programs, second to the Stanford D School, on how to do this. And it was to bring in that idea of design thinking, sort of outside in, empathy, simplicity, design with the end in mind, versus an engineering culture, which is always make this, is do everything it possibly can, <laughs> and then, oh, at the last minute, I better think about how to show it to a user, you know? And they're so different. And that's what you have to bring in. So that generation pushes in that direction, right? That everything should be as simple as what I touch. And I think that's a really healthy thing. Uh, well, Jenny, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and kind of talk through all of these issues. You know, Lord willing, we're all going to be working for a bit longer. So we all have to think about the future of work. Jenny Rometty, Chairman and CEO of IBM. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, my friend. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.